0: Oh, let's get it. Monday, April 26th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the US Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you all had a great week outside of podcast land. If you're a podcast listener, And I know you are. I was reminded this week with a blog release on blogs.va.gov that the uh, VA Podcast Network has a new show out. It's called Standing Ready. It's a history driven podcast about medical innovation within VA. My colleague Sean hosts it with a uh, VA historian, Katie, and they have some pretty good content coming out over there. For instance, I listened to their first episode about prosthetics in the VA. And it featured Vietnam veteran Fred Downs, who was the director of VA's Prosthetic and Sensory AIDS service and was also an amputee himself from Vietnam. Now I want you to picture this, a crusty Vietnam veteran amputee being placed as the director of the VA Prosthetic Service and looking around that program for the first time and taking stock of the situation and everything. Uh, you got to go over and check out that story. At some point, I got to, I got to get Fred on here as well. But until then, go check out his interview over on that podcast. Uh, It's good stuff. Again, the show is called Standing Ready, and you can find it any place podcasts are hosted. Overall, in the podcast realm, there is some big news. Apple Podcasts now has the ability to create channels. Now, the VA Podcast Network is out there. It's an affiliation with all the other official VA podcasts that we have out in the space, uh, we have a monthly newsletter that you can sign up through VA's Gov Delivery email system. A lot of other good podcasts out there like Fresh Focus, uh, that's a nutrition podcast. My Life, My Story is a veteran biographical type of podcast. Uh, Vets First is a healthcare-based research podcast. Uh, we've been trying to get the benefits and cemetery administrations to get into podcasting, hint, hint. I think there's a lot of good stuff they can provide over there. But this new functionality uh, with Apple Podcasts will allow us to be a tighter network of shows. And I'll be excited to announce when we start organizing into that. Couple ratings, however, no new reviews this week. Womp womp. As you know, I do appreciate the feedback that we do get, especially with the Apple Podcast reviews. They're not only a good way to communicate directly with your show. And again, it is your show but those reviews help get Born the Battle recognized by more veterans out in podcast land by bringing us higher in the algorithms on the app. So appreciate your input in advance. News releases. Um, looking at it, there's nothing to report at this time. No news, no new news releases. That is a mouthful to say, but no new news releases since April 14th. Very well. As always, to read all the VA press releases to figure out what's going on within VA, you can always go and head over to va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash press rel. That's P-R-E-S-S-R-E-L. All right, so this week's interview is, other than episode 235 with Secretary McDonough's, our first interview that we recorded and put up on VA's YouTube channel. If you're looking for just the interview, it's a good option. And please, please provide feedback on either the podcast reviews on Apple Podcasts or shoot me an email at podcast at va.gov. If you watch it, give me some feedback and let me know about the YouTube presentation. If you like it, if you don't like it, uh, and if you like it, please share it out on social media. This week's interview features, get this, a former offensive tackle at the University of Wisconsin. He is also a former Marine Corps sniper with tours to Afghanistan and Iraq. And after going to Haiti after their 2010 earthquake with eight other volunteers to help out with disaster recovery operations, he morphed that experience into Team Rubicon, which is a veteran-led nonprofit that maintains a 130,000-person volunteer roster, okay, from eight volunteers to 130,000 which focuses on serving vulnerable and at-risk populations affected by disasters. They especially focus on helping in disaster relief with rural and urban populations that lack traditional or proper insurance and or public and private resources to recover. He is also a founding member of Veterans Coalitions for Vaccinations, whose mission is to overcome geographic and socioeconomic limitations and provide vaccinations to more Americans. He is Marine veteran, Jake Wood. Enjoy. Interesting news. Uh, before I went to bed, I checked LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, uh, they both, uh, they must, both must have been listening to my uh, my phone, my communications. Cause uh, I saw a tweet from Leo Shane and, and I saw a LinkedIn post from uh, Mike Irwin. Uh, you're out. You're mic dropping.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that. Um, it's, it's hardly a mic drop. It's a mic handoff. And uh, I'm, I'm now just standing at the back of the stage instead of walking off of it, right? Gotcha. Uh,
0: I'm literally interviewing you the day after you announced that you step, yeah, you're stepping down as CEO of t- Team Rubicon. Uh, that's news. Uh, I'm assuming that I'm the first media you're talking to since that announcement?
1: Uh, I did a brief interview last night with We Are The Mighty, but yeah, this is the first uh, first live one.
0: I may have to move this uh, this episode up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who
1: knows when that one's going to drop. <laughs>
0: um, that announcement was about 24 hours ago, uh, you know, from, from the, the recording of this interview. Uh, honestly, how are you feeling about
1: it? Uh, I mean, it's been your baby for what? 11 years now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I feel fantastic. Um, you know, I, I. It's been a long eleven years. It's been an amazing eleven years, wild ride. Um, but I always knew I was going to step away at some point, and this this was certainly the right time. The the organization's as strong as it's ever been. We had an amazing year last year, despite COVID. Um, you know, and, and we're able to to navigate that crumbling financial landscape and emerge on strong financial footing. We did amazing. Uh, you know our operational outputs were were three times higher than they'd ever been. And, oh, wow. you know, and, and the reality is I've had my succession plan in place for five years. You know, I brought in uh, the the person who's going to take over for me is named Art Delacruz. He's been our president and COO for, for the last five years. And the intent has always been that it, he would transition into the CEO role at some point. And, also you a know, former guest on Born the Battle. So, if you haven't heard that in the archives, go check that out. Yeah. That's- I mean, Art's an incredible guy with such a, an amazing background. Um, and he's so humble about talking about it. Um, I told him he's going to have to, that's going to have to change when he becomes CEO. People are going to expect to hear a little <laughs> bit more, but.
0: Um, well, that, that interview
1: was about four years ago. So, hopefully that we gave him some good initial training. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And like, listen for me, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, man. And, and I'm, you know, I, I don't know exactly what's going to be next, but Back in mm-hmm. December, I was on paternity leave with our second kid and and I just turned to my wife and I said, I think it's time for me to leave Team Rubicon or just, you know, step down as CEO. And she looked at me, you know, like I had something growing on my forehead and she said, are you crazy? We just had our second kid, you know, and she had medical problems. And it's like, and you're going to walk away from the only steady job you've got, you know? And I said, well, you're going to have to trust me. I think it's the right time. So, okay. um, so here we are.
0: So. What uh? What was the thinking behind that decision? Uh, overall, as far as like you, you kind of just laid it out there, but I'm what I'm, what I'm like, why? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna play the 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 part of your wife, like why? Like what? What? What are we doing?
1: <laughs> um, you know, I again, I think I'm, I think I, in my heart, I'm an entrepreneur, and mm-hmm. I'm ready to, I think launch and scale something again, and is that what dro- drove you to uh, into team rubicon? I think it's what it? I think it's what you know, I stumbled into team rubicon on accident, right? We didn't go to Haiti and start this thing with some desire to build an NGO that would, you know, run a 50 million dollar P&L. We kind of just thought we'd be a couple of dudes down in Haiti doing good work. Um and it just it just really kind of came from there. And I think that's actually how most great entrepreneurial stories start is just you kind of stumble on a problem and you you kind of stumble into a solution, which is what we did. But I think I think it was that entrepreneurial drive that certainly kept me going through the first decade. Um, but I, you know, I, I think I'm personally ready for a change. Uh, I'm ready to tackle the next hill, and I think that all organizations, and I talk about this frequently as CEO, yeah. you know, my, my team's heard it. You know, organizations if they're not evolving, they're slowly dying. They're just like any organism on the planet. And, and organizations can evolve in what they do, how they do it, and the people within them. And the people within them evolve two ways. They either themselves evolve and grow and adapt to the changes that the organization's experiencing, which I've certainly done over the last 11 years. But then ultimately, those people themselves have to change. Like yep. You have to like refresh who those people are. And it's just time for the organization to experience that. I, I'm, I'm confident in that. So, plateauing, seeing seeing a, a a time for change and and look. Well, to make build. no mistake, we're not plateauing. I mean, gotcha. the I mean as far as is your growing, personal growth, that's,
0: that's what I mean. Like, but like your own personal growth within the company. You're like, okay, I missed the. Is it something like you missed the
1: journey of growing something? I think it's that. And, and listen, if I'm being honest as well, it's an emotionally draining role and in, in organization to lead. You know our. The nature of our work is responding to tragic crises globally and domestically, and you know it's uh, it's tough. It's a draining, it's a draining line of work. Um, yeah. And and I and I I started to realize last year that my energy that I could bring to the job every day was starting to fade a little bit. You know, you can only have so much compassion and so much. Um, You know so much of the the, that that emotional um, fire, and you know I start to see I started to see mine dim a lot a little last last year, and and I as I was speaking to some of my mentors about that, they said, ah Jake, you know listen, it's just COVID, everybody's going through it. You know it's because you're working from home and you're not getting energy from the staff, and so I I took some time last year wondering if that was it, and it certainly contributed to it. Last year sucked. I mean it, it sucked for anybody. It didn't matter, but that was only a part of it. You know, it was also, I think just a decade of, of having done it. And so, um, so when I turned to my wife, I, I said, you got to trust me. And she fortunately did. And she has for the last 11 years. I'm lucky. Very good. Very good.
0: Um, okay. So, before my research, I knew of Team Rubicon. Uh, I knew of you in the military community, but I did not know that you played D1 football at the University of Wisconsin. That was something I completely did not know about Uh, Two-time Big Ten All-Conference team as an
1: as a offensive tackle. Were were there any desires? Academic All-Conference. Let's put that modifier in there. I was not (laughs) (laughs) academic All-Conference. I was I was nerd All-Conference Big Ten. Very good. Uh, (laughs) Big difference. Did not (laughs) see
0: that because I was like I I I, I obviously glossed over the academic part because I was like man were there any desires to see if that was a career option
1: for you? Yeah, no. I mean, listen. That's why I went to Wisconsin. I mean. Uh, you know, Wisconsin is the premier offensive line program in the country. And, and I, I chose Wisconsin over a handful of other Division I scholarship offers uh, where I might have had an opportunity to play a little bit earlier. Um, but I knew that I wanted that challenge of, of competing against the best and trying to make it to the NFL. At the time I went to Wisconsin, our offensive line coach, every single player that had started at least one full season on the offensive line for him had signed at least one NFL contract. Wow. in like the previous 12 years. I mean, so the, the track record was just insane. Yeah, and I got there and, you know, my first two years, as I expected, I was uh, backing up a, a starting uh, offensive tackle, a senior. And when he went to go, uh, he left, he went to the NFL, he was drafted. And I thought it was my time to shine. Uh, and lo and behold, they'd recruited a guy in after me named Joe Thomas, who was the oh, no. <laughs> the number one <laughs> offensive tackle prospect in the country. And I thought, okay, well, he's going to wait his two years and then he'll get his chance after me. But uh, no, uh, life had a plan. <laughs>
0: know, for those of you
1: that don't know, Joe is it went on to go play, I think, 11 seasons in the NFL, uh, never missed a snap until his final season and will be a first ballot Hall of Famer. So. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, first year. Yeah, he's a future Hall of Famer. Absolutely. And, and very good. Very yeah. good. Um, So, I mean, you're obviously not, you don't look like a tackle now. I'm looking at you right now. I'm like, that's, I could see maybe, you know, free safety <laughs> like that. Um, uh, was it hard to cut weight to get to the Marine Corps?
1: No, it wasn't at all. I, you know, I, I um, the, the program wanted me to weigh, you know, they wanted me to play at like 315 pounds. Right. Yeah, and I do- couldn't, I couldn't really get past 290, which is big, right? Like I, I weigh 235 right now. So I'm still a big guy, but yeah. um, you know they they wanted me to add another twenty five pounds. I just couldn't do it, and so I was really struggling to even stay at the weight that I was at. And uh, and bear in mind that like the strength and conditioning program at Wisconsin is intense. And so when I got done playing my last game, you know I had, you know I had a six hundred pound squat, a four hundred pound bench. I had a ton of muscle on me, yeah. and. And so, as soon as I stopped eating like 10,000 calories a day in the pursuit of staying at 290 pounds, like that weight just melted off me. Like, I, I bet you I was down to 245 pounds within 60 days. Wow. Wow.
0: Um, your bio states that you you joined because you were inspired by T- Pat Tillman, um, ASU alum myself, know that story very well.
1: Uh, how and when did you make that decision to join the Marine Corps? It was right before my senior season. Um, you know, by this point in time, I knew that my my prospects for the NFL were gone. I mean, it was it was very clear. Joe was um, running away with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's. You know, I, I had actually one of the things that I battled as well was was injuries. I both my shoulders had a tendency to blow out of their sockets, and one of them I had repaired. The other one, they wanted to repair it, and I said, "Don't even bother." Um, um, and and so that spring before my senior year they actually moved me inside to guard. And I was, I was running as the starting offensive guard that spring. And then, you know, the week before the spring game, I blew out my shoulder again, right? Mm. And so, you know, I had this conversation with my coach and, you know, and he's like, Jake, you know, I just, you know, I can't count on you. You're made of glass. And I, I couldn't disagree with him. And around that same time is when the news that Pat Tillman was killed broke. And so, uh, probably in fact, right after that spring game, and I just made the decision then that I was going to go in and, and tell my coach that I was, you know, not going to take my fifth year of eligibility, that I was just going to play my fourth year, my senior year. And then I was going to join the Marine Corps afterward. And uh, so I went, you know, I, I finished my, that, that fourth year, even though I wasn't starting, you know, I, you know backups are important. I, w- I could play all five positions on the offensive line. So I knew I was a kind of a critical backup for him. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to fulfill that obligation and I wanted to finish my degree. And so, I played my last game on January 1st, 2005. And, you know, as soon as I dropped, I don't know, my first 30 pounds, I walked into a Marine recruiters office and I enlisted. Uh, You've probably had this question before. You have a four-year degree. Why'd you go enlisted? Uh, I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. I I spoke to an officer selection officer uh, early in the process in that January. And he looked at me. So granted, this is 2005, right? The, the military's not having a problem meeting its quotas. No. So this officer selection officer looks at me and you know he's impressed that I'm playing football, but uh, I'm still probably 275 pounds. I don't look like a Marine officer who tend to be pretty trim. And uh, he said, how many pull-ups can you do? I'm like, I don't know, six or seven. He's like, well, you need to be able to do 20. I'm like, dude, I'm 275 pounds. By the time you need me to do 20, I'll do 20. He's like, all right, all right, all right. He's like, how, how fast can you run three miles? I'm like, dude, I haven't run further than hundred meters in five years. So, I don't know how, how fast I can run three miles, but tell me what I need to run it in and I'll get there by- and I'll time. get there. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a division one athlete. Let's, let's go. And so, then he said, ha, have you had any injuries? I said, oh, well, you know, I've, you know, had a surgery on my shoulder and I had a couple of surgeries on my foot. He goes, oh man, you're a lot of paperwork, man. He's like, I got guys lined up outside my office. You know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure that, uh, that I can sneak you in. And so, he he said he'd call me back. He never did. Um, at the same time, though, I was talking to some people who would come back from the Middle East, and and you know they said, "Listen, if you want to if you want to be in the infantry, and if you want to lead Marines in combat, go be a squad leader." They're, you know, then they said it's yeah. a squad it's a squad war now, and uh, you know it's the corporals and sergeants that are, that are at the point of friction. And you know, I thought about that for a little bit, and I decided yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I want to do, which is kind of a dumb, foolish thing, that only like a 23 year old guy who's got a self-inflated, you know, overinflated sense of self would say, but that's how I ended up enlisted in the, in the Marines. Very good. Uh, your, uh, officer recruiter,
0: uh, reminds me of the air force recruiter that I first went to uh, <laughs> the same thing. It was, I had a speeding ticket over $600 and he was like, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna entertain it. And, uh, yeah. I, I walked right out dejected. And the, the Marine recruiter was like, uh, yeah, I'll uh, I'll pay that. I'll make that go yeah. away. <laughs> it's the, and you sort of like that's the brotherhood of the Marine Corps. You know, we take care of our own. I was like, yeah, eighteen year old kid, like yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I paid it back and everything, but it was a, that's kind of how I joined the Marine Corps. Very very good, very good. Um, so you deployed with uh, Second Battalion, Seventh Marines as a scout sniper, both to Af- Afghanistan and Iraq uh, as a sniper. You, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm assuming that you were really able to take in both combat environments. Um, Can you maybe for those that, you know, of course, those that have never been, can you maybe compare and contrast the two, the two environments?
1: Yeah. Well, first to clarify, I was a, I was in a a line platoon in Iraq. So in in 2007, I was in a line company, line platoon uh, in Anbar province during the surge. And then Mm -hmm. went to sniper school after that and deployed as a sniper to Afghanistan. Um, You know, Iraq was Extraordinarily volatile when we were there. It was still a three-way war. We were fighting AQI and the Sunni insurgency for most of the time I was over there. What year was that? Two thousand seven. Okay. It was the bloodiest year of the war, and we yep. were in you know the Triangle of Death. Um, you, know, it, you know, and it was it was a combination of of IEDs. Like the roadside bombs were everywhere. I mean, it was probably the height of the roadside bomb uh, yeah. phenomena. We lost a lot of guys to that. And then it was it was also though you know they were getting pretty. Pretty clever with planting them uh, for foot patrols too, because the Marine Corps, like, famously kind of ditched mounted patrols during that time period to avoid IEDs. You know, while the Army was staying mounted in strikers and things like that, and we were going out on foot and just ground pounding it, and they got really good at just you know laying these these booby traps. And, and launching these complex ambushes and things like that. So, it was it was really kinetic. Um, my, my platoon would do these dwell ops where we would go out into an area called the Zidon outside of Fallujah for two weeks at a time. We'd take over local Iraqi houses, fortify them and patrol out of there for a week or two before packing up and moving on to the next house. Um, you know, you contrast that to Afghanistan. My, my battalion um, that my sniper team was a part of, was deployed to Afghanistan off rotation, which basically means that when we got back from Iraq, we were owed, I think, fifteen months of t- uh, stateside time. Yeah. But about about seven or eight or nine months after we got back from Iraq, they rotated us into Afghanistan for kind of a kind of an an unscheduled emergency deployment because the the Brits were threatening to uh, withdraw from the Helmand Valley because mm-hmm. they were taking so many losses, and so the Pentagon said, "Hey, we will throw you a battalion of Marines to shore it up." So we went in there and we had one battalion of Marines spread across an AO that was the size of Vermont. And my sniper team was tasked with supporting a company minus. So basically like two and a half platoons in the city of Sangin, which, you know, Sangin has become a very well-known city in Afghanistan because it was one of the deadliest, you know, areas. And so we had two and a yeah. half platoons and in, in two sniper teams owning, and I say that in air quotes, owning Sangin. In a year and a half later, it was taking two entire battalions plus to 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 own Sangin. and I wouldn't even say we owned it; we were just renting it while we were there, and we were getting our ass kicked like every day. So, as soon as you as soon as you move on, it gets taken over. Type a type of deal. Yeah, I mean, we were yeah. we were renting
0: that space from the Taliban. Make no mistake. Yeah. Uh, while you were in,
1: can you meet either a best friend or your greatest mentor? Yeah, I mean, my, I became very close with some of the Marines that I served with. Um, you know, Clay Hunt was my sniper partner in, in sniper school. We served together in Iraq prior to that, and uh, we we spent our time in Sangin together. Clay's fairly well known in the veteran space. You know, there's a congressional bill named after him for suicide prevention because he, yeah. he took his own life in 2011. Um, but you know, I was I was became very close with a number of the guys in my sniper team, and um, you know, a couple of the other squad leaders from my time in Iraq that I stay in touch with. I, you know, I, I've maintained like really healthy uh, relationships with my platoon commanders, but you know, they, you know, it's, they're the, they're the, they're the dark side, man. You don't get to know them that well when you're in. So it's kind of hard to stay super close to them when you're out, but I see them every once in a while. And, you know, truth be told, we, we more or less kind of looked at each other as colleagues when I was in, cause I, I was their same age. I had a college degree, like they kind of knew not on equal footing. I certainly wasn't, and I gave them all the deference that they were owed as my officer. But you know, they'd pull me aside every once in a while in the middle of the night, and you know, we'd have some honest conversations. So there was some, there was some mutual respect there as far as 100%. As, far as colleagues. Gotcha, gotcha. Hundred percent. At the same uh-huh. time, when you know the LT was trying to be super serious i could look at him and say like listen sir i know that 2 years ago you were puking on yourself at a frat house so i <laughs> i know exactly I, I know exactly where you're coming from all right you're not audie murphy <laughs> very good outstanding
0: um, what year did you decide to get out
1: well i i got out in late 2009 but i made i really made the decision to get out in late 08 while i was transitioning home from afghanistan yeah. Um and it was it was really two reasons. I, I just came to the decision that I didn't want to continue to fight that war. Um, you know, I'd kinda of hoped that Afghanistan would be a little bit more of a feel a little bit more of like a righteous war as compared to my first tour in Iraq. And it it really didn't. Um, you know, we were fighting these mostly teenagers, you know, and it's and, and I'm sitting there and we're fighting these teenage Taliban kids. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, these guys aren't a danger to America. You know, these guys, they just want us to get out of their backyard, you know? And and it just was hard, kind of hard for me to really justify the the blood that we were spilling, both ours and theirs, uh, on that soil. Um, and, and that's not to say I became a pacifist. That's not to say that I don't think that there's some limited true presence in Afghanistan that's worthwhile, but it should be predominantly made up of special operations forces doing limited strikes and. You know, yeah. on on predetermined targets versus n- the nation building we were trying to do. That's an aside. The second thing was my body. You know, I already mentioned how the the injuries I was battling uh, in football they just, of course, compounded with four years of the infantry and sniper uh, community, <laughs> and and so I, I I I wasn't quite sure I could. Do another enlistment, and my options were pretty limited. Once you're in the sniper community in the Marine Corps and you promote past sergeant, which I, I was a sergeant at the time, like you rotate out of the sniper community, you can't really stay there. And I think that's changed now, but my only option was to go back to the line companies or um, teach. Well, or go to MARSOC, which was really nascent at the time mm-hmm. and hadn't really found its footing yet. Um, and I just I looked at the MARSOC pipeline and I thought, you know, I don't know that my body can handle it anymore. And so I, you know, it wasn't worth really trying because I just felt like my body would probably break down in the process. It's a
0: young man's game. <laughs> yeah, sure. And when you,
1: when you drive it, like you stole it, like I did for the first <laughs> 28 years, it's, uh, <laughs> you become that old man pretty fast.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So you got out and uh, right around, 09. The, yeah, right around 09 there, Um, re- reading some, you know, doing some of my research that, that initial, you, you mentioned Clay, that initial transition sounded rough. I think at the time, and, and let me know if I'm off base here because I was still in, but the VA, Veteran Service organizations, universities, nonprofit support, heck, heck community support, uh, local community support, it seemed like it, it wasn't ready for the influx of the Veterans that came at the time. Is that accurate?
1: I mean, I think that was accurate, probably for the first three or four years of the wars. But um, you know, by the time I was getting out in oh nine, oh you know, two twenty ten, I think they were ready. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they'd been gearing up for nine years, seven years after Iraq. Um, I just don't think that they were framing the issues right yet. Um, you know, they were still framing the issues entirely around. Education benefits and access to employment, and, and you know, listen, both really important things, right? Um, Absolutely. But I, I think that they were missing this fundamental component of a young man or woman's transition out of the military and really out of war, which is purpose and community, and in really helping them to define what their post-war identity is. And I think people saw that as kind of you know abstract and fluffy and kumbayash. And I'm like, you know, and I kept trying to tell people like, no, this is, this is really fundamental to, uh, you know, a a, a veteran's existence. And if they have those things, they're more likely to go be the best version of themselves and get, you know, go to school and stick with school, get everything else, everything else will will come easier. Yeah. Yeah. Once you have that. You don't, you don't, you don't join the Marine Corps, and dive right into your MOS school, right? You join the Marine Corps and they mold you into a Marine. They spend 13 weeks doing that. You don't even pick up a rifle until you're six weeks into to boot camp, right? Yeah. And there's a reason for that because they're trying to create for you this shared sense of purpose, this, you know, this sense of community or this tie to the Marine Corps. And they're trying to, you know, reinstill in you a new identity for who you are. Now, how do you deconstruct that on the back? backside of of the military and not just dump somebody into the the civilian equivalent of an MOS school. No, you got to okay. make them a civilian again. You got to make them proud of who they are when they look in the mirror and they wake up and they're no longer wearing a military uniform.
0: How did you find that purpose yourself? How did you
1: <clears throat> get into that? Well, I I mean the the short answer is uh, I went to Haiti 2 months after I got out of the Marine Corps and I found it there, but oh, was that it was I, that quick? I didn't know it was that quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I got out in uh, the last week of October, 2009, and January is when the earthquake hit. Um, you know, I also, though, I, I think it's worth noting, I, I think I was a little bit different. You know, it's, it's hard to speculate what my transition would have looked like if not for starting Team Rubicon. But, you know, I was older when I joined. And so, I was older when I had these life-changing experiences on the battlefield. I think I also was maybe a little bit more introspective than some of the the people I served with. And so I, I had I was framing the war and the the loss a little bit differently from the beginning, like yeah. as some of my peers were. So I, I just don't know how much I would have struggled, but it's hard to say. I mean I
0: mean you almost had a transition before the military too with with football. It's almost like you almost lived that, that okay, now what sense of yeah. feeling that a lot of veterans feel, even before you even joined. Um did you use any VA services at the time, or have you ever used any VA benefits, any healthcare, GI Bill, home
1: loan, anything? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I hit for the cycle on what you just said. I, I got out. Um, VA was my primary health care, healthcare provider for the first couple of years. You know, certainly as we were starting Team Rubicon, and we weren't able to afford benefits packages for people. Um, we, uh, I, I, my. Even after we started Team Rubicon, we didn't think it was gonna be a full time job. And so I actually was executing on my plan, which was to go back and get uh, my MBA. And so I went to, you know, an MBA program for one semester before I dropped out, but it was, you know, using my GI Bill benefits there. And then uh bought my first house, the VA loan, which was, I mean, honestly, like that is the most amazing benefit, you know, that yeah. I mean, because we bought a house yeah. in Los Angeles that we had no right to afford. Um you know, at a time when uh, it was the perfect time to buy and, you know, just unlocked so much financial opportunity for us that we otherwise wouldn't have had. Outstanding.
0: I always love hearing stuff like that. Um, we actually did a full benefits breakdown on the VA home loan on episode 150. So, if you know any veterans that want to, you know, we, we, we went to the loan guarantee office and we said, Hey, from the time that a person's thinking about buying a home to the time that they're getting the refinance scam mail in their yeah. house, uh, yeah, and, and, yeah. We, and, we, and we covered everything in between. So, again, if you, if you haven't heard that, check that out. Um, now, my predecessor, Tim, he interviewed uh, Art Del Cruz uh, again, about four years ago. And, and my apologies if, if you've listened to that episode. And if you haven't, you should. It's a really good one. Uh, but I got to go into the history of, of Team Rubicon a little bit. Uh, by the way, uh, Art's from the University of Minnesota and you're from the University of Wisconsin. That's got to be oh- fun. Art flunked out of the University of
1: Minnesota and ended up at the Naval Academy. <laughs> no, he uh, he uh, he spent a year at at UM, uh, which is our fiercest rival at Wisconsin, which is I think what you're getting at. But he uh, he was trying yeah. to play hockey there, and he likes to joke that when you're, you know, five foot ten in Filipino. Uh, playing in the hockey center of gravity of America, it's really hard to make it. And uh, sure. so he ended up withdrawing after a year. And he says he flunked out. He definitely did not flunk out, but that's how he likes to tell the story. He ended up at the Naval Academy. That's where he graduated from. Okay, very good. You know that into the Naval Academy. Let's put it that. Yeah.
0: Way. I, was, I was wondering, how do you flunk into the Naval Academy? That's yeah. interesting. Very interesting. Um, gotta catch him up. I gotta gotta catch up on that with him. Um, okay, uh, Team Rubicon. Uh, again, like you said, it started two months after you got out. I didn't know it was that quick. Um, started with eight people. What was the what was the initial impetus? How wh- how did the whole thing start?
1: Yeah, I mean, long, it's a it's a long and complicated story. But um, you know, I was sitting in Los Angeles. I had just applied to graduate school. I Was waiting for my applications to come back. And uh, you know, turned on the TV one day and saw the earthquake in Haiti unfolding, and um, you know, a lot of people I don't think remember just how bad that situation was. You know, a hundred thousand people yeah. died almost instantly, like a hundred thousand people wiped off the planet in seconds. And they estimate another hundred thousand plus died in the in the next you know call it month um, from their injuries and from lack you know lack of access to water. And um, and water. Yeah, uh, and uh, so you know, I was watching that unfold, and I thought you know it looked you know, one, I I was bored, right? Two, I had a an overinflated sense of my own capabilities. And then three, you know, I looked at the situation. I thought, hey, it's no more dangerous than, you know, Fallujah or Sangin, And so, I called a couple of organizations that were going down there and I said, hey, I'd love to volunteer. I, you know, I'm not doing anything to this fall when school starts. Um, and they all said no, which- Pissed me off the time, but in retrospect, I completely understand. And I would tell you know say no to any idiot that called me today after the Haiti earthquake in my capacity at Team Rubicon. Um, <laughs> <They're good. laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I I wore that chip on my shoulder for a long time, but now eleven years later, I'm like, yeah, if some idiot called me after a massive earthquake and told me how special he was, I'd tell him to go pound sand too. Um, so. You know, I called a bunch of guys I served with, and and we we organized a team, and we got down there a few days later, and um, linked up with some doctors, and basically began running medical mobile medical triage clinics uh, mm-hmm. in some of the hardest hit areas of the city, and uh, treating these injured folks. And I mean, the first like three or four days we were on the ground, the, the injuries that we were treating were horrific. It was like a civil war battlefield, you know, crushed crush wounds. Crushed amputations, skull fractures, women in labor, um, you know, broken pelvic bones, um, gangrene was already setting in. Uh, I, I, saw they, an, I, saw, I saw an interview that you said Haiti looked familiar. And mm-hmm. what? Yeah, way. I mean, like, listen, the, the entire you'd go through city blocks that looked like you know a full marine artillery and and aerial barrage had gone through in advance of you know two companies of, of uh, you know, Marine infantry. I mean, that's exactly what it looked like. And you know, we'd be driving, you know, we were hiring these local drivers and we'd be driving through cities and we'd see bodies in the streets that had been executed by gangs, like hands bound behind their back, bullet Gee. holes in the back of their head. Uh, some of them set on fire. Um, so, some
0: so were using it as an opportunity.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was this whole power vacuum. I mean, Haiti was a you know, it was a terribly governed place to begin with. It was the yeah. lowest GDP in the Western hemisphere, um, you know, totally uh, defunct government. And then after, you know, whatever level of government there was before the earthquake was completely non-existent afterward, the police, the military. And so, yeah, I mean, criminal networks were taking advantage of that power vacuum. Um, you know, I don't think that, I don't, I mean, I'm sure it, it was not a safe place for us to be. I don't want to exaggerate that, but, you know, it was, I don't think we were as humanitarians necessarily um, at risk of being targeted by any of those networks, but certainly, I mean, driving through streets and you see a bunch of bound and gagged bodies executed on the side, like it's a little unnerving. Well, sure. <laughs> you don't know, have a radio where you can call a, you know, call a, you know, close air support strike if you need it. So there was yeah. no RF. Ah, uh,
0: wow, interesting. How did you okay, so how did you grow Team Rubicon from eight people eleven years? you know eleven years ago in Haiti uh, to where now it's one hundred and forty thousand plus volunteers, mostly veterans, uh, seven hundred and ninety plus operations over seven hundred communities helped. Um, start with eight people. What was some of the biggest factors in growing that? Grit um, <laughs> really. I mean, After, after, after Haiti,
1: were you like, I think I have something here to grow or was it? Yeah. I think we, I think we looked at each other and said, this, this is, um, there's an opportunity for something special here. You know, I, you know, we, we came home with this premise, this hypothesis that military veterans were, um, well-suited for disaster response, you know, pretty simple premise. And we set out to prove it. And, uh, you know, over the first couple of years, I think we were proving it operationally. We were struggling to prove it um, in a sustainable business way. And, um, you know, so, you know, it was a lot of grit and tenacity. And I, you know, I always joke with with my team, um, you know, that, that when I'm onboarding new hires, I, you know, I introduce myself and I tell them like, Hey, this is the first real job I've ever had. So, um, you know, that should terrify you and we're going to figure it out together. Um, and that's true. I didn't know what I didn't know about starting a, a company and scaling it. And, you know, again, the other thing was people often think, like, oh, well, you were in the Marine Corps. You must understand logistics. I'm like, if you mean when I reached into the box, there were batteries and ammo there, yeah, I get logistics. Like, I don't know how we got there, but. <laughs> Do you think I ever once thought about logistics as a sniper? Like, you know, I would, only when I didn't have what I wanted and I cursed logistics officers. You know, as loudly as I could at the sky, but like, you know. But what I found is, you know, logistics officers are you know some of the best logisticians in the world. And when we when we realized that we suddenly had to like rationalize our nationwide supply chain and, and logistics infrastructure, yeah, we should go get you know former logistics captains from or you know supply clerks or whatever it might be. And, uh, and they do have that skill set. So, we've, we've been able to tap into that, but you know, what did I rely on? I mean, just grit, just figure it out. Gotcha, Gotcha. Um, you know, I initially heard of
0: Rubicon when I, when I heard of the Cajun Navy during, you know, when we were getting hit with hur- you know, hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. I uh, heard about them and then someone called me, you know, there's a veteran leading something similar-ish. Um, so, you know, Rubicon supports uh, hurricane disaster relief, recovery, rebuilding, Uh, but you also respond, uh, Rubicon does also respond to more than that disaster-wise, humanitarian
1: crisis-wise. Where else has the organization been in the past decade? Yeah. We've, we've plugged into a lot of things. Um, You know, we, we don't just respond to natural disasters, like you mentioned, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, fires. Um, You know, we have done, refugee crises before um, mostly in Syria not with really? Syrian, not in Syria with the Syrian refugee crisis. We, okay. we did work in Jordan. we did a, a substantial amount of work in Greece uh-huh. uh, as, as refugees were we ran you know helped run a refugee uh, camp and clinic uh, in Thessaloniki, Greece um, which was really powerful. Um, yeah, you know we've done civil conflict, right? So we've we've deployed to places like South Sudan in the midst of uh, conflict there, Burma uh, on the Thai-Burma border, um, which which of course you know Myanmar, Burma is, is back in the news now um, yeah. for all the same reasons that we were there a decade ago, um, and That's and uh, yeah. you know and, and and things like infectious disease outbreaks, you know obviously COVID over the last year, but um, you know prior to COVID we were doing some infectious disease outbreak work. Um, in some U.S. territories and some uh, some places globally, and, and we anticipate doing more of that. But you know, COVID was um, you know obviously overwhelming globally, overwhelming nationally. Yeah. We had been tracking it when it was really just kind of thought of as an Asian problem, and, and thought about you know preparing our our medical teams to deploy to Southeast Asia to support some of the less robust countries bordering China. Um, but that la- that planning lasted maybe six or seven days before we realized like this is not going to be an Asian it's, problem. This is global. It's, it's here, coming home. It's, yeah, coming. it's coming home. So um, we we very quickly pivoted everything, re task, organized the entire organization top to bottom to prepare and, and respond to COVID. And we did that, and we have been doing that for the last fourteen months, um, which uh, which has resulted in some really remarkable um, operations for us, ranging from. Uh, you know, we've sent hundreds and hundreds of medics into Navajo Nation to run medical decompression there, treating thousands and thousands of patients. We helped even like stand up or not stand up, but support their ambulance corps when their ambulance drivers were decimated. Oh, wow. we, we established mobile screening clinics for COVID throughout the West, Western US. We surged thousands and thousands of volunteers into food banks to s- sustain their operations. And then, most recently, now we're supporting vaccination efforts globally. I'm sorry. Well, actually, yeah. yes, globally, because we're now in Papua New Guinea.
0: It's a different type of disaster, isn't
1: it? And, and, and probably something you normally
0: normally it's a disaster when you guys go to it. So it's something you see, feel, touch. Uh, this one, well, I guess I mean I, I say in a physical sense as far as uh, physical disaster, but this is kind of a different thing that we're seeing altogether. Um, what if what is your team? What are your teams seeing, um, and what's the feedback that you're getting from from on the ground when it was when it was happening? Uh,
1: very different type of disaster, yes, but um, still has m- almost all of the same elements, right? So, yeah. um, you know, limited resources, right? Whether it's vaccines or masks or hospital gowns and gloves. Uh, limited information. We didn't know what we didn't know about this disease when it first broke out, right? And so this whole thing was a learning curve from the beginning and we we continue to have to learn about it. Yeah. And on top of limited information, like massive amounts of misinformation and disinformation. And right? you see this in disaster zones, you hear, you know, you hear about this, you know, village along this coast that's completely cut off and running out of water and you spend 2 days trying to reach it and then you get there and you realize there's either no village or they're completely fine right so you know, you know so sometimes sometimes that's well. the natural fog of war sometimes that's actually deliberate misinformation you know we were in Mozambique for a cyclone a couple of years ago Mozambique was home to a vicious civil war a few decades ago and you know we there was real politics being played between these political factions in the north and the south and and they weaponized that information and that misinformation for humanitarian actors it's not uncommon, right? To to yeah. in order to direct humanitarian resources to their own populations and keep them away from you know, rival factions. So all of those things, you know, play in, and in COVID was no different. The misinformation with COVID has been um, astounding yeah. uh, and really tragic. Uh, and it, you know, it's not like Team Rubicon was was immune to it. We've had our own volunteers fall victim to the misinformation, and and that's been a battle that we've had to fight, and. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate we've had to expend energy and resources on it, but, um, you know, it's, it's the name of the game right now. And in, in my world, that's, that's, that's what we have to combat daily, you
0: know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were talking about vaccinations. Um, you know, recently Rubicon and a couple of other veteran led uh, nonprofits have pivoted a little bit, you know, from, from their normal missions. And, and you guys have made this Veterans Coalition. Um, it looks like there's three main missions from the coalition. Uh, help current vaccination site, help current vaccination sites that are out there, establish vac- vaccine sites that aren't, uh, and helping to vaccinate as many Americans as possible. How have you been able to interject this effort with these, all these, all these
1: better nonprofits. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm proud to say that probably later today, we will crest 1 million vaccines supported by this effort, which, wow. which is really amazing um, for me to, to just see that milestone come. Um, you know, we we began planning for the vaccine rollout uh, last fall. We knew that there were going to be vaccine candidates that were going to get approved and we knew that there wasn't much in the way of a plan. And part of that was has been the fault of you know, the administration part of the, part of that is just simply the reality that you know the, the the federal government can buy supply and they can distribute it to states but states then are responsible for you know determining eligibility requirements and that's a been a balkanized um, uh, approach you know the federal government can provide guidance but they can't dictate the, the results, and then at the end of the day, the counties—there's over three thousand counties in the U.S. are responsible for the actual execution. And so, yeah. we just knew that there wasn't going to be a rationalized approach to this. No, no we, also, uh, we we also knew that for every person sticking a needle in someone's arm, there's ten support functions that need to be filled by non-medical providers, and and, and so it was just going to be a it was going to be a, a big manpower shortage. And so we. Yeah. You so know, it's, we, just like, we,
0: it's just like a grunt on the ground. You need the intel, you need the supply guy, you need you need yeah. all of that to, to make that happen.
1: Yeah. The infantry is 15% of the Marine Corps and everybody else just exists to support the infantry, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't tell anybody not in the infantry that. But, um, <laughs> I, think uh, I think most are aware. <laughs> 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 and, it, and if you forget the infantry is there to remind them. Um, uh, we get it. Uh, yeah. So so we pulled this this coalition together. We have, you know, we have a lot of experience in, in planning and executing operations at Team Rubicon, but we knew we didn't have even enough bodies, even with our hundred thousand plus volunteers, to do it alone. And am I, am I getting that right? The veterans coalition for, for vaccinations.
0: Vaccines. Yeah. For vaccination. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um so can you name the other nonprofits that are that are in it for those that don't know?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really a who's who of post nine eleven veterans organization. Yeah. So, it's it's the Mission Continues, Team Red, White, and Blue. It's IAVA. It's WWP. It's Student Veterans of America. Uh, we've added Travis Manion Foundation since we've launched. I know there's a handful of other groups that uh, we're talking to about getting involved. And, you know, it's really going to become important now that, you know, in the next 60 days, we're going to really invert from vaccine shortage to vaccine oversupply, right? We're about to hit this glut of supply, which is great, but yep. having a ton of vaccines doesn't save anybody's lives. You have to get them into people's arms. And so, you really have to now just execute, execute, execute. You know, with with over, you know,
0: I, you always hear the number, there's over 56,000 veteran nonprofits. It's nice to see some team up with something like this. And of course, uh, you and Art have been guests and I think we've had guests from team RWB, uh, SVA. I'm not sure about IAVA, Mission Continues Women Warrior Project. Um, what is like the role for each? Like, what? Do you, how are you guys fitting together to make this work?
1: Yeah, well, so Team Rubicon is really taking the lead on all of the operational planning uh, and um, and execution. You know, this is, this is what we do. We plan, we plan operations, we execute them. What we need from them is for their people to show up and and fill roles that you know we're defining, we're scoping, we're training. But at the end of the day, we just need people to execute. But you know, yeah. beyond that, there are there are other things that each of these organizations are bringing to the table. For for example, IAVA has a huge megaphone and in, in reach from its advocacy work. The mission continues has done a great job over the years developing really strong relationships and inroads into uh, vulnerable and marginalized communities. They do a lot of inner city work, and so you know we've been able to tap their relationships and some of these relationships like Watts or, you uh, know, neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. that we really don't have experience working in. And so, you know, our approach in this vaccine effort has been, you know, really, how do we ensure that your zip code does not dictate the ease at which you can get a vaccine? Sure. Right. And so, that means that, you know, if, hey, if you're, if you're in an urban medical desert and you know, there's no Walgreens, uh, cause the neighborhood's too run down and there's no community healthcare centers. Like, listen, those people need vaccines more than anybody, right? Because yeah, they have just- a higher mortality rate with COVID than anybody. So so we want to make sure that they have as much access as the people in, you know, the Chicago suburbs, you know, Naperville, right? Yeah. So yeah. Outstanding. Um so you 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 recently turned writer
0: uh, I've, I've noticed, yeah. and and you know we've had many writers on the podcast. Some some are that's their main profession, like Graciela uh, Tescarno Sato, John Del Vecchio, Jim Michael Hoff, uh, and some others that are like you, Dale Dye, Jeff Strucker, Tom Satterley, uh, and others where it's not their primary profession. Uh, is Once a Warrior your first book? It
1: was actually my second book, but it's the only okay. one that I'm really proud of. <laughs> what was the first one? First and one I wrote mean, uh, uh, of it. First, the first one was called "Take Command." It was a book that uh, I wrote for Crown, which is a, a big imprint of of Penguin Random House. And
0: okay,
1: they approached me about writing the book, and and they wanted me to write a leadership book. And I, and I said, no, nah, I don't really want to write a leadership book. I don't think I know anything about leadership yet, uh, and. And I said, but I, I really want to write this memoir type book. And they said, No, nah, we don't want that. You know, it's this or nothing. So I'm like, All right, I'll take it. You know, but not not particularly <laughs> proud of the work. Once okay. a writer, I'm proud of.
0: Okay, uh, was it another? Uh, they approached you and you and you pitched them back, and they said, Okay, or is
1: it more? Was it more of a? Uh, hey, no, to do this. Yeah, two years ago, I decided it was time to do it, and uh, you know, I went out and um, worked with an, an amazing literary agent who who. You know, I've become good friends with, and she helped me craft the proposal, and and then we we went and we pitched it to you know the big publishing houses, and and had a couple of competing bids, and you know chose chose the publisher that we went with for a variety of reasons, but um, you know mm-hmm. it was it was a pretty awesome process. Gotcha, very
0: good. Well, you've had some high praise since it came out. Um, Tom Brokaw said it's the book that America needs right now. And, and Maria Shriver uh, said, uh, Jake Wood offers the most soaring definitions of service I've ever seen. Um, one, how did you get it that your book into their hands? Um, <laughs> two, which uh, to where they commented on it. Uh, two, what made you want to write this book in the first place?
1: Yeah. You know, I think, um, uh, so I'll answer the second question first. I, you okay. know, I, <laughs> You know, we were approaching 10 years at Team Rubicon, and I felt like we finally had gotten that organization to a place where, you know, I know it's gonna live, outlive me. And I felt like helping to memorialize the first decade of its of its existence was something that was worthwhile. Mm. Two, my first daughter was born. I've got two now, but my first one was born and and that really forced me to look at the world through a different lens. And I know that's a cliche, but it's true. And I thought about just how um you know, I think I think people are kind of losing hope in America, um, whether it's economic yeah. hope, whether it's opportunity, whether it's you know whatever whatever it is. I think people are losing hope that America is what it can be or should be or what once was, and that saddens me because I fought for this country, and but I see what they're seeing, and I but I've also seen this side of America that's amazing. You know, these these men and women that have served alongside me in the military, these men and women that have served alongside in Team Rubicon. And I felt like, yeah. you know, America needed a little dose of, hey, here's here's what we're capable of. And, um, you know, and I tried to race out to get that published in, in front of the election, and I I missed it by seven days. Um, but I think that's why Tom Brokaw reacted the way he did to it, because, you know, the, the, the final chapter of the book, it talks about this uh, you know, it ties it back to this idea of hope. And, you know, um, so often Team Rubicon shows up on people's most hopeless moment, yeah. right? After a storm has just taken everything that they own, or, you know, maybe even someone that they love. And and we help restore it. You know, we send volunteers to communities they've never been to, to help people they've never met. And that's about as American as it gets. So, how do we do more of it? I, I think it's easy to get disillusioned uh with with with
0: America sometimes especially in this city in washington dc it's it's easy to get dissolution but it's i can imagine when you go to something like um disaster relief operations in America or heck a, a marines funeral you really see um what you're missing in that mm-hmm. you know um Jake what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military
1: that you apply to what you do today the world is much more complicated than you think it is when you're 21 or 22 years old. You know, I, I think I think I think the military gave me perspective. You know, I think I thought certain things about the the places we were fighting, the people that we were fighting amongst, um, and I think seeing them up close and personal from the perspective that I had, um, it certainly didn't make me. Suddenly, believe that there weren't bad people in the world. I've I've fought them face to face. They've tried to kill me numerous times. Came close a half dozen times. Um, So it's again, it's not like I I don't I don't think that there's bad people in this world. But I think I I look at I look at the opportunities that people have or don't have, and I I I think I have a better understanding of how it shapes who they become. And and I think that that's. you know that might be exaggerated in a place like the Helmand Valley in Afghanistan, but it's it's really actually pretty similar to somebody who's born in a Rust Belt town uh, in the United States, or um, you know, uh, a broken family in in a you know, economically disenfranchised urban core. Um, and it, it's just made me rethink. You know what? Um, you know people often talk about America in kind of these big platitudes. Yeah. And you know, I used to be that guy. You know, I used to be the guy that that talked about um, you know, America's this, that, or the other thing. Well, my America is all of those wonderful things. Like I went to an amazing public school. I went to an amazing state school. I had a nuclear family with two loving parents. My dad always had a job. Um, you know, I never had to worry walking home from school about my safety. I, you know, I always had food on the table. Like I, you know, my I I lived the American freaking dream. But playing football with a diverse group of young men from across the country, joining an infantry platoon from a with a group of diverse men from every corner of the country fighting in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and seeing, you know, what happens there. I realized that my America isn't necessarily everybody's America and I can appreciate now uh, the dialogue that people sometimes have about what America can and should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Jake, we've covered a lot of
0: ground uh, in relatively short amount of time. Very succinct. I like it. Um, is there anything that I've missed or haven't asked? No,
1: I think we uh, we
0: got through a bunch. <laughs> uh, maybe a parting shot for anybody that might be listening um, and is searching for that. You know, they're 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 within that two month window, like you were
1: when you first got out. Um. Um, I, you know, I would just say, uh, you know, take the time to look inward and, and really figure out who you want to be. Um, you know, as you're getting out of the military, um, you know, don't rush it. Don't don't uh, don't marry the first girl you kiss, right? Um, really, really think long and hard about who you want to become, and then just like anything you did in the military, build a plan and and execute it relentlessly, and, and you you can do it. they need a home, they can get a home loan. If they need education, they can get education. If they were hurt in service, we pay compensation. If you weren't hurt in service, but you fell on hard times, we give you pension. There's just an array of benefits out there for veterans. And we really want to just make sure that all the veterans know what's out
0: there. Choose VA today. For more information, visit va.gov or call 1-855-948-2311. I want to thank Jake for taking the time to come on Born the Battle. You can find more information about Jake at jakewood.co forward slash about hyphen biography. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week came out of WMAR Channel 2 out of Baltimore. and You can find the sources at wmar2news.com. WMAR 2 News featured Captain Jim McMahon back in January. He spent 31 years in the Army. He made his way to Colonel, but he said Captain just stuck. The definition of a veteran is someone who at some time in their life raised their hand and at the same time wrote a blank check payable to the USA up and to including their life. That's a veteran and I love every one of them. Captain Jim McMahon told WMAR 2 News earlier this year. After retiring from the Army, service remained in the plans, and in 2015, he went to the Hartford County Executive in Maryland and asked to reorganize the county's Veterans Commission. The commission serves as a search engine to the county to ease the frustrations for someone who just moved to the area or is in transition from military to civilian life. Some need help with finances, housing, or just need advice. Jim said this was a solution where I could keep on giving and I was still with soldiers. Capt Jim said everyone on the commission at the time did a fine job but they were all assigned their role so they lacked drive. Now the commission now the commission is made up of volunteers who are passionate about helping veterans. He said it's those 13 people who are out there working every single day in that commission and working with all these organizations to come together as a group and as a family to take care of that veteran. And that's what it takes. Everyone coming together as a community within Hartford County for those veterans. Along with advocating for veterans, Captain Jim hosted a radio show for nearly 30 years on WVOB and WAMB with Bob Callahan. He was named a Hartford living treasure at the County council meeting on January 5th. Sadly, Hartford County's own Captain Jim McMahon, recently passed away on April 14th. The county will fly their flag at half staff from sunrise on April 30th through sunset on May 2nd of this year to coincide with his memorial services. Army veteran, Jim McMahon, we honor his service.
1: Ready,
0: eight, five. Ready, eight, five. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. We're also on those dots and echoes and all that other stuff in your house. Pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, Pinterest, all of them. DPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. fight bullets fly, they might they're not down of the campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 762 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Point, click, pull the trigger to the two. Made bullet in my back. raining down dead, punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down cover. Machine girl. Bullets fire. Bullets fly day and night, rain. Simplify, do or die, another campaign. Here we go, lock and load. Oh, 331. Lug a thousand rounds, and I ain't bringing back one
1: when you would drink the chai with the, the locals, it was one of two things would happen. They they would either make it as good as they could for you or they would deliberately like do something so that it would make you almost crap your pants. And so, I'm halfway back on this, you know, return to base, this RTB, couple of kilometers into it, middle of the night, we're crossing this field outside of Fallujah and in the, I get the, the stomach bubbles, you know, the stomach gurgles and I'm like, okay, I thought that guy hated us and now I know. Thought I could make it back, I maybe make it fifty more meters across the field, and all of a sudden, like I, st- I put my hand up in the air, you know, to call the the patrol to a halt, and I'm looking around and I realize I just got to go, and so I I start dropping my rifle, and I realize that we're wearing we're wearing uh, flight suits under our our flax because of the I the flam- <laughs> flammable IEDs, so I have to strip everything <laughs> off of myself. In order to do this, so I'm I'm ripping my flak jacket off. I'm taking my LBV off, all my ammo. And I'm struggling out of my flight suit, and I can't get it off my shoulders because I'm too tall, and it's it's too small for me. And I finally get it off, and it's like it is it is T equals zero. And uh, I just squat in the middle of this field, and you could hear the echoes of what I was doing off you know off the the nearby buildings as my my squad just pulled a 360 security around me. And I thought to myself as I was sitting there squatting, this is how it ends for me. I'm going to get smoked right here in the middle of this field. And somebody's going to have to tell my mom that it was with my flight suit around my ankles in the middle of of an Iraqi field. So, there's your saved round.